thankful for the moisture and the safe travels. We have the congregational meeting at the end of the month. It'll be after the morning uh, service. Uh, we will have on the 16th, so I guess that's this Sunday, um, Sunday's real time to go over some of the matters ahead of time so that you're prepared and ask questions and understand what's before you before the vote so it doesn't take up as much time on Sunday. <coughs> Otherwise, we have the call to worship. Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 119T. T is in tango, 119T. Let us pray. 
And so, God, we are thankful for your word and for your law in particular, as it illuminates our life and guides us to righteousness and protects us, Lord, from the wicked path and destruction. We pray, God, that we would continue to walk that path, Lord, knowing not because we are good enough, but because, Lord, you are transforming us by the power and grace you've bestowed within us and also should have brought upon us through our justification. We ask, Lord, for your special uh, presence be with us this evening as you promised. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you sit, let us turn to hymn 471, 471.
So God, we seek the comfort that you promised in your word, as we do indeed have that in Christ Jesus. And at times we struggle, Lord, uh, in our hearts and our emotions, Lord, to realize that at times, Lord, we are confused and easily distracted or even tired, Lord. Help us to that end, to always trust in you, to know that we do have the peace that passes understanding, that is the peace of justification, the peace of satisfaction of your divine justice, Lord. That although we cannot feel, touch, or taste God, we know to be real. We ask in particular, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would be with us in our sanctification and growth, that we would in mind, will, and emotion, Lord, follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To do so, Lord, as best we can day by day, knowing that you are with us, God, knowing that you cover our sins. Lord, cover all, all our sins every day. We pray in particular, God, as your people, for one another. We pray, Lord, for our denomination's effort and home missions, that is to establish Orthodox Presbyterian churches here in America, uh, throughout the countryside, in the cities, in the light, God, wherever we can go, wherever, Lord, we have uh, insights, and we pray wisdom to know the best place to establish such churches, to understand our limitation as a denomination, and uh, how we can do these things, Lord, and how we can have outreach, God, certainly in accordance to your word, without ever compromising uh, the faithfulness of the word of God, Lord, the law and the gospel, and in our doctrine and our practice in particular. And so we ask God for continued wisdom and perseverance and integrity at our home missions committee at the denomination level, uh, committees, Lord, at the Presbyterian level, and the efforts that local churches do uh, by themselves or collectively or through the Presbytery God in coordination with one another, and establishing and creating new churches, Lord. Help us find godly ministers, men who are thoroughly dedicated to your word, that have experience, Lord, who are well-equipped for this unique task of establishing and starting a new church, of going out and finding Christians and preaching, Lord, and getting new converts and establishing a new church. And all that it takes, Lord, both the uh, relational interaction, uh, the logistics involved, and the money as well as the timing and everything else, God. And so we pray that they would get the wisdom they need, they need, Lord, from their committee, from themselves, God, and that they would be united, Lord, at all those levels of our denomination and the proper task and the proper uh, tools and the means, Lord, to a glorious end of establishing churches and to expand the kingdom of God, we pray. We thank you, Lord, for our Feeble efforts, Lord, yet real efforts and sincere efforts. We pray that they would continue to grow. We ask, God, that you would <clears throat> be with our churches and our Christian friends and our unbelieving neighbors, Lord, in this economy, that you would stabilize the economy and protect uh, the economy, Lord, and hold back uh, forces that would make things worse and more difficult, especially for the middle class and the poor above all, the difficulties they find themselves in, Lord. And, uh, and so, Lord, we pray to that end to help give us wisdom as well. We don't always know the best policies, who to believe, but who to vote for in these matters, God, and we struggle with these things. Help us, Lord, to do what we can and leave it in your hands uh, to know that all things will work to your glorious and, and for our good. We pray also, Lord, in particular, not only for our church and home missions, but for all the churches here across this nation, Lord, for reformation of the churches, and that is a reforming unto the word of God, both in doctrine and in practice, and that those churches that are confused on the truth of your word, Lord, will get greater illumination and truth, God, that they would have a faithful pastors and leaders, Lord, that the members would accept nothing less than a clear pronouncement 
an explanation of the Word of God in the text before them, Lord, that they would be Berean Christians, God, and not just swallow anything they hear. Help them, Lord, protect them. Uh, bring them out of churches that will not change and reform, Lord, and bring them to pure churches. We pray, God, indeed, that all your churches, uh, both uh, reformed and non-reformed, will continue to be more obedient to your Word, Lord, and trusting in you. Help us to that end, we pray, that we can do our part as a church, as a presbytery, as a denomination, as individuals and as families, God, to pray and to work to that end as we can to bring our abilities and opportunities, Lord, and insights uh, to, again, further reinforce the truth in your church, God. Purify your church, we pray, God, across this nation and here and in Denver and where we are, Lord, in particular so that we can praise you all the more. The world can see, God, in our practice that we show love for one another, as Christ tells us, that the world may see that we are yours. And also, Lord, to uphold your doctrine, to stand firm upon the truths of Jesus Christ and not accept heresies, not accept flippant waves of speaking of your glory and your grandeur, God, but rather stand firm, as we'll see this evening, Lord, to stand firm in reformation of worship as well. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We do praise and thank you, God Almighty, for the many blessings you've given us. It's overwhelming, Lord, even in a weak economy, even in the many problems that we have, God, uh, and yet we have so much excessive blessing around us. And we're thankful to give these tithes and offerings, God, and ask that they be used mildly for your kingdom's sake. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13, near the end of the Old Testament by Malachi. Thirteen one through 6. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, 
And then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. And he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, these, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we read your words given to us those many thousands of years ago, we're thankful for how clear and applicable it is to us for us today that you have prophesied of old that you will come and take away the idols of your people and of the church. And we see that, Lord, fulfilled in the New Testament, ultimately fulfilled in the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to that end, God, to grow therein, to be encouraged by this prophecy, to know that we live in such times in which we are more sanctified than they were of old, Lord. But even then, we are still far short of how sanctified we will be in heaven. Nevertheless, we thank you, God, for where we are. In your name alone we pray. Amen. In describing the coming new age of the New Testament era in these texts, the Spirit paints a picture of salvation and reformation. The salvation found in Jesus is mentioned several times throughout chapter 12 and now chapter 13. He is the one who is pierced for our sins, we read in chapter 12. It is his blood that flows as a fount for our sin, as we read in chapter 13, verse 1. Here the picture of the future is further unpacked with the description of Reformation. This Reformation begins with something many Americans will not start with, which is the first table of the law. I will remove the idols from you. That's the idols, of course, false gods of their hearts and of their worship. It proceeds to preaching, which is in the form of the Old Testament prophets, for they didn't only foretell, right, they also foretold, to tell forth God's word and applied it like preachers. And so that obviously reflects worship as well. Idols and preaching both go into the domain of worship. Not exclusively so. And then the Spirit shows the reformation of the church involves an efficacious repentance, a repentance of the change of the heart of the false prophets, which you don't see very often in the Old Testament, do you? You see, you hear about the false prophets and how they gang up on the true prophets of God and use the powers that be, the king and whatnot, to take out the true prophets. But very very few do you ever hear of them actually repenting. Here we read of their repentance, of their change of heart, which is a glorious thing to read. Let us look more carefully here at what this Reformation looks like. The Reformation of worship as the first point, verses 1 through 2. In that day, I mentioned last time, and I'll say it again here, that that phrase is an eschatological phrase, or a phrase of the end times with respect to the Old Testament, which would be for us today. It's talking about us. We are in that day. It's used multiple times in chapter 12, five times, including the famous passage of verse 10 of chapter 12. And on that day they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. On that day, in that day, is verse 9, and it continues on there. In that day, verse 11. In that day, verse 13, or verse 1, chapter 13. In that day, verse 2, just over and over again, right? The chapter divisions are artificial. And that's the continual theme here. In that day, verse 4 of chapter 12, it is... This day, brothers and sisters, that begins with the day of Jesus Christ coming. The coming of our Lord and Savior, but often includes the effects of his coming on earth. It's not 
specifically just the day of his incarnation. It's all that's wrapped up in that, right? His incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension on high. And not just the ascension on high, but also his work through the apostles in the book of Acts is a fulfillment and seen in here. It's all of a piece through them and then the fruits of that that we see today. Right? And what was that imagery I, I pointed to when the prophets saw the future of old? It was like looking at two mountain peaks. They kind of overlap a little bit. It looks like one mountain from a far distance. When you look sideways, there's two, isn't it? It's the first and second coming, and it covers all of that in the middle. This is that age, as an all-millennial, of a thousand years between the uh, first and second coming of Christ, a thousand years being not literal, but metaphorical, because it's very much in a metaphorical book called the Book of Revelation, <laughs> full of imagery, of a long period of time. <clears throat> so, the effects in the work of Christ explicitly and directly, and that which flows from the work of Christ, are seen in these texts and all the Old Testament texts of prophecies of the New Testament era. Some are more explicit than others, obviously, you know, and Bethlehem is, uh, you know, exalted above all. That's explicitly about Bethlehem. Christ is pierced. That's they're very detailed. Other places not very detailed, just broad, sweeping uh, panoramas, descriptive pictures of Christ and his era. At verse 2, in particular, as a specific description of the New Testament era, in more detail, verse 1, as we went over last week, which warranted its own sermon, of course, is the fount of Jesus Christ and his blood for us. And this is the bedrock work of our Lord and Savior that affects the entirety of all the churches. In that day, says the Lord, verse 2 of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. Now, when I talk about a specific description of the New Testament age, by specific I just mean more detailed than verse 1. <laughs> it's relatively more descriptive. And the description here is I will cut off the names of the idols and they shall no longer be remembered is a relative prophecy with respect to us in the Old Testament. The era we live in now compared to the Old Testament is more or less more faithful. And I always like to use the example of multiple wives. We don't put up with pastors with multiple wives like they did in the Old Testament. There's growth and sanctification. We are more faithful that way. That's not pride. It's just a simple matter of fact. I don't, I don't believe it because we're better, obviously, but God has given us more grace. It's all of grace. And this is the same here when it talks about God will cut off the idols. That is, the idolatry will be swept away. It shall no longer be remembered. The implication being they throw it all away. Now they remember the Lord and no longer having false worship, are they? Relative to the Old Testament, that's the difference here. The desire for a king, for false idols, these things are fading away. And so it's a relative description between the Testaments, because even in the New Testament era, we still struggle with some of these things. And compared to heaven, we're kind of like the Old Testament. And of course, because it's a relative description, it doesn't include every individual Christians, but large swaths of differences between the Testament eras. Some Christians still struggle with idolatry. It doesn't say none of them ever struggle with idolatry. But again, as a prophecy, part of the function as the uh, as a tool of prophecy, of a tool of revelation, is to wake you up and paint a vivid picture to show you the glories of God working through His church, and not to satisfy all the particular curiosities. Exactly, what does that look like? And get nitpicky and say, well, that's exactly what the word is. Why don't we have, you know, literally every single Christian getting rid of idols? Because that's not the point of it. 
It's to get your attention to show the, the broad sweeps, sweeping joy and power of the Spirit in changing the church over time, between the Testaments in particular. Now, this issue of idols in verse 2 was the perennial problem of the Old Testament, wasn't it? Over and over again. I went through it in Malachi, although Malachi, uh, Micah, excuse me, talked a lot about public justice, right, and economic issues. Idolatry was in there. I mean, it didn't disappear. And it's also there in Malachi. And it's here in Zechariah. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. It's a perennial problem for the Old Testament church. And to describe the problem more precisely, I think this is important. You certainly had Jews who worship a false god. In their heart, they were not worshiping Jehovah. They were worshiping another god altogether. They were apostate. But you also had a lot of Jews that worshiped Jehovah wrongly, in the wrong manner. Worshiping the true God falsely. And that's important. We read in Exodus 32.5, for example. It's a very good text to unpack this Old Testament idea, uh, problem. Exodus 32.5. This is your God. This is Aaron talking to Israel. Right? Remember, Israel's like, where's Moses? He's been gone for such a long time. We want to worship our Lord who saved us from Egypt. And, and uh, you know, Aaron's like, okay, you want a God? Here, give me your gold. <laughs> he told Moses, I threw the gold in, and out comes this golden calf. Right, right, Aaron. And he says, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He talks about the golden calf. This is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who is that? Well, Jehovah. Uh, and you may be thinking, like I grew up with a long time thinking this, oh, what he's saying is lowercase g gods. This golden idol is actually, you know, the Canaanite god, it's this other god, it's Zeus or something, but not actually the Lord God Almighty, right? No, clearly not that. They're not that stupid. And yet we read, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, the covenant-keeping God, right? Jehovah, Jehovah, we don't know how it's pronounced, but he's saying, let's worship Jehovah in the wrong way, through this golden calf. I mean, even the pagans didn't literally believe the idols as such were gods, but conduits to the gods. The golden calf was called the Lord, who brought him out of Egypt, your God, Elohim, because sometimes it's translated God's plural because Im in the Hebrew is a plural, but it's a plural of majesty. It's used in the singular for God in all the translations. So the translators are like, what, what do we do with here? I would say it's singular God. They're saying this is God because Aaron says this is the Lord. This represents the Lord. It's a way of worshiping the Lord. They worshiped, in other words, the true God. We believe this is the true God. They worshiped him in a false manner. Everyone with me here? So that's more precise of the second commandment, not the first commandment. Everyone catch me there? That's an important distinction, because the worship, to break the first commandment, by definition, you're not a Christian. <laughs> you can sit there and say, I believe in the second commandment, I'm very serious about worship, we have cults that are very serious about worship. And the third commandment, and the fourth commandment, they take the Lord's Day or something, they don't want to blaspheme, but their God is not a God of the Bible, and they literally don't care. They don't believe in the Trinity, they don't believe Jesus Christ is God. You can, make, can come up with all kinds of concoctions in history in America. 
you break that first commandment, by definition, you're not a Christian. There's <laughs> just no way around it. And so often, I would argue, in the Old Testament, I'm not the only one, that a lot of this time when, he, when God is complaining about them worshiping false gods, when the prophets complain of Israel worshiping false gods, this is what they mean, taking an idol and giving it the name of the Lord and saying, this is how we worship God. In violation of the second commandment, more, more precisely. It is not the Lord, for we cannot take a form of the Lord. Therefore, it is a false god. This calf is not the Lord, because you cannot make a form. God had no form. You can't image the Lord at all. And so, if you're trying to image the Lord, this is a false god, even if the intent is to worship the true God. Right? That's what's going on. That's what's going on here. It's a constant problem because the ancient Near East culture around them, of course, was rank idolatry, where they literally had different gods. They're like, this isn't Jehovah. I don't, I don't believe in Jehovah. I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in this other God, you know, Baal, Astaroth. And I worship in this way. And they're like, no, no, we don't believe in Astaroth. We don't believe in Baal. We believe in Jehovah. We're good Jews. But I kind of like the way they worship. It's more exciting, right? Like when they wanted a king in 1 Samuel. We'd rather have a king. Like, they literally say it like the other nations. We want to worship like the other nations. It's called syncretism. To sync, to put together, right? Soon, to be with, to merge God with false worship. It's a terrible thing to do, and it's a terrible thing to do today. And it's a, it's a problem that we struggle with to some degree, but it's certainly not to this level, right? I mean, do we have crass idols and golden calves anymore? No, praise be to God, there has been a change. And in fact, it's interesting, in Matthew Henry's commentary on this, uh, he points out a partial fulfillment after the Babylonian captivity, where he says, I will cut off the name of the idols from the land, they shall no longer be remembered, that during that time and up to the time of the Jews, uh, up to the time of Jesus, the Jews were no longer into crass idolatry, and that certainly seemed to be the case. And in fact, by the time of Christ's time, they were very zealous against False prophets, even. But unfortunately, that zeal went too far, as we know, and they called Jesus a false prophet. So there's been a partial fulfillment that way, he would argue. And that seems to make sense to me. The high places were done away with. You hear no more about them after the Babylonian captivity. Just gone. And of course, ultimately, it points to the New Testament. That, that is, it points to the New Testament. Ultimately, beyond that, it points to heaven when all this will be done away with. And as a fuller fulfillment, I would say, in the New Testament church, the gross idolatry, as I pointed out, of wooden statues, of golden calves, are more or less gone. Even in the Roman Catholic Church as such, and they play around with this. They don't have calves. They at least have a human, I suppose. That's better, but it's not. God's certainly not an animal. So you can say in one sense it's a little better. You know, bad idolatry, a little less bad idolatry. Sure. <clears throat> It's certainly removed in large parts of Protestantism. Just poof. poof. Even in those who, who disagree with the Reformed on the second commandment and images of Christ, they don't worship Christ. They're not like, here's Christ who got you out of Egypt. Come down and bow down before him like they bowed down before the golden calf, do they? Now, the Lutherans, for example, I just saw in that article I read about that Arthur, he's actually a Lutheran and he had a picture of Jesus on the cross. Was, yeah, okay. So that's, even that's better, isn't it, than the crass 
idolatry, the gross idolatry, the overt idolatry of the Old Testament era. And the fullness of the, of course, is in pure worship in heaven. So, the prophecy during Christ's time, this has been fulfilled and being further fulfilled in our lives. And by implication, it is a command for us, if God is pleased to do this, and it's a moral activity that we can emulate, clearly this is, he's removed the idols from the land. Thus, we are encouraged to remove idols from the land, to eschew false worship and false gods. This is a good thing. And we ought to be encouraged to do the right thing as well as God does. God causes purity in the church. It is God who will do it. It's interesting. I will cause the prophets and unclean spirits to depart from the land. I will cut off the name of the idols, and they no longer shall be remembered. God will do it, but of course he does it through the instrument of his grace and through his people and through his church. And we see that in history uh, where our forefathers fought for pure worship, fought for pure doctrine, because idolatry obviously deals with doctrine. That is, teaching, what is the teaching of who God is? Is God an idol? Is God a, a golden calf? Can you make an image of God? Of course not. Those are doctrinal matters, as well as practical matters of worship. And that God has given, especially the church leaders, to fight against these things. And he, li- he raises them up. We praise the Lord for doing that. Uh, over the, the centuries, I talked a little bit about that church history. Uh, they had iconoclastic battles in the 600s and 700s, and they did it again during the Reformation. We said, no, 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 no. Well, that leads us to the second point, Reformation of Preaching. Verses 2 to 3, I read read a little bit about that. I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. He goes from idols to prophets. Why? Well, you know why. Because the power of the idols is there by the power of the prophets. They're the ones lifting up the idol and telling you to go worship the idol and saying, this is Jehovah who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shut them off at the knees. You cut down into idolatry rather quickly. And so God does this. Again, another false, another perennial problem in the Old Testament is not only false worship, but false preaching. And they go hand in hand. It is the preaching that excuses false worship of idols, or at the very least, preaching that is silent about false worship. <laughs> false teachers and false prophets were the bane of Israel's existence. I will also cause the prophets and unclean spirits to depart from the land, Verse 2b, and it shall be come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, that his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And so the unclean spirits, which are uh, a parallel way of saying unclean prophets, it's the spirit of the prophet, to use the language of Paul in the New Testament, and he gives utterance, that is, these are false spirits, false truths behind them. Speaking, and God will purge them all of this. Lying prophets will be shut down. And if, and what we see, of course, in the New Testament era is they are shut down. You have prophets in the New Testament era and Acts, not a lot. There's not a lot of emphasis on them. The most popular prophets you know of the New Testament era are known as apostles. They too had the office of apostle, of prophet built into them, as it were. And they didn't prophesy very often. That is, they've passed away. Any false prophets they had, they shut down rather quickly. And as I pointed out, the Jews themselves were zealous to shut down false prophets. And of course, at the second coming of Christ, all false teaching will be shut down. By prophets, of course, again, it involves teachers. This is an echo of Deuteronomy 13 in the Old Testament. 
If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, something miraculous to get your attention to say, Hey, I'm down here, so listen to me. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods. There you go. Which you have not known. And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. False prophets were there. God warned them about false prophets. He said it very explicitly here in Deuteronomy 13. He said, they will rise among you, false teachers, and they will try to deceive you. And I'm, I'm using it as a test to purify you, of course, to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? The chaff uh, is the husk and whatnot from outside the wheat that's worthless. It's not really count as wheat or anything you would eat. And God has so designed it to separate them in the church at times. Paul talks about that. He says, why is there strife in the church? So that you would know the truth paraphrase. God does this on purpose. And so here he tells him right up front, I'm doing this, and you will have these false prophets, and they will come to you and say, let us worship God falsely, or worship another God altogether. And it continues on describing what you should do. And we get down to verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul, your best friend, if they come up to you and secretly entice you, saying, let us go and serve other gods. The gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. Because you're supposed to put God above family. You still love your family? You still take care of your family the best you can, even if they're unbelievers. That's a natural responsibility you have. Being a Christian does not eradicate that, but rather reinforces it. Nevertheless, if they make an active point of undermining you and going after our God and lying about him and asking you, why don't you serve another false God? Why don't you serve someone else other than Jehovah? Then you have no pity upon them. You reject them. Say, no, I want nothing to do with that. Because God comes first. That's the point. The zeal for God should be greater than the zeal for family and the zeal for anything else we have. When push comes to shove, when they collide, not just in the abstract, sometimes you hear that, you're very pious and you hear sometimes language in Christian circles, I grew up this way, you really love God. You'll spend more time with him and his word and and worship. And I still have to spend time with my family, right? No, no, you if you really love God, you got to put him first. Well, putting him first is not an abstraction. It's a real life thing. It's called worship. It's called following his law. And part of his law says, if you put me first, you will take care of your family. <laughs> it's when they collide. It's when they say, give up on your Christianity. Give up on Christ. Give up on the Bible. And you're going to have no pity and say, no. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. I love you, wife. But I cannot and I will not. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. The New Testament problem, of course, not just an Old Testament problem, with false prophets, false teachers. Jesus obviously dealt with it. The apostles dealt with it and shut them down. This is a dramatic picture again, a painting, a broad sweep of history compared to the Old Testament. 
of the New Testament era and ultimately of heaven. Of such zeal as should be our zeal today. Has not God done more for us in the New Testament era than the Old Testament era? Yes, indeed. Christ has come in time and space. That has made a difference. Should we not thank him more and more and stand for his name? When false teachers preach, we should close our ears. When they teach, we should not pass on their words. We should take preaching seriously is the implication on the flip side here. Of course, no one is a prophet today anymore. When we meet a prophet, we should reject him as one who speaks lies by definition. Reject false teaching. Reject the false teaching and the false teachers themselves. We like to make distinctions in Christian circles. Why well, you love the sin, sinner and hate the sin. Sure, to some degree, that's, that's a functional, helpful way of doing it. You do that in your family. But when you come to serious things like, I don't know, God, saving of your soul, the first table of the law, and they play around with it, you've got to reject them altogether, kick them out of the church. They won't repent. Because God's honor is more important. And in heaven, of course, all lies will be gone forever. No more struggle, no more confusion. But meanwhile, we read in the text the zeal they had for them. The parents tell him, his own parents, his own flesh and blood, the mother who birthed him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And they shall thrust him through when he prophesies. This is a picture of in that day. We are in that day. Not that we should run around killing people, but we should be so clear in our rejection of falsehoods that we even tell our children, we don't want anything to do with this kind of a lie. And if this is all you're going to propagate, we don't even want you around us. Because you're just going to cause heartache and difficulty. I don't want to hear blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy all the time. Because my God, I love him. You don't want to hear people bad-mouthing your wife or your best friend. All the more for our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our Holy Spirit. And so we ought to take preaching seriously as they took it seriously. And I think we're going to see here um, an interesting development here in the next section. Verse 3 related to here to verse uh, 3b or 3c at the end of verse 3. Reformation of repentance. Not only reformation of, of worship, reformation of uh, teaching or prophesying, reformation of repentance, verses 4 through 6. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. And he will say, I am not a prophet, but I'm a farmer, a common man like you. I'm not special. And what are those wounds on your arms? And he will answer, they are the wounds in which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So there the prophets, the false prophets are not dead, are they? The thrusting through, although the implication seems to be they're killing their son, uh, may be, as we see here in verse 6, a wounding of the son. At the very least, it was metaphorical of wounding his pride and telling him to shut up. You're on your way to hell. This is dangerous talk. To their own son. My implication to anybody else, to your own father. To your own best friend. We read that in Deuteronomy 13. So, the repentance we read here, which is a, a beautiful picture of false teachers repenting and being saved. When false teachers repent, 
They ought to acknowledge their wrongdoing. And we see that here implicitly with the expression of the word shame. In that day they shall be ashamed of the visions they had. When you have repented, you are certainly ashamed of your past and the things that you said because you knew they were wrong. You're embarrassed. They will no longer don the robe of a coarse hair for deception. That's first mentioned in the life of Elijah who had a coarse um, garment around him with the animal hair just not smoothed out or anything else with oil or something like that, but very coarse to show their dedication to God and that the difficulties of this life are nothing in comparison to the burden they carry of the prophecy. And uh, therefore, false prophets apparently would imitate the garb of a true prophet to deceive people. They would wear the same thing. Like trying to talk like a prophet, but as we know, they gave false prophecies. Here, they give it all up. It's a picture of repentance, isn't it? It's a picture of repentance. I'm, I'm no longer a prophet. In fact, he says in verse 5, I am no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. He goes back to his old job, what he grew up with. It's repentance in action, and it's a good thing. The prophets give up their job and deny that they're prophets. They don't go back into the ministry. They leave the ministry altogether. Isn't that interesting? They don't go back into teaching anywhere. They just become a simple, low worker in the church doing a simple job. And there's no shame in that because it's a true and honest job. Being a false prophet is not an honest job. And so we see then repentance in action. Part of repentance, of course, is acknowledgement of sin. He says, I'm no longer a prophet. I'm ashamed of my old visions, the things I used to do. The other part is rectifying the consequence of the sin to the best of your ability. Of course, if you steal, you say that was wrong, but you also give back the money, right? <clears throat> and you change that lifestyle, as Paul urges them in Ephesus, in Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, to work with your hands, to do an honest man's labor. The other part is to rectify. Obviously not in the ultimate sense as Christ rectifies our sins of divine justice, but in the temporal consequences we find ourselves here and now. And so the prophets shut up and work. I'm no longer a prophet. I'm a farmer for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. He used to exalt himself in his office. Look how great I am. God has spoken to me. I'm telling you what to do and everything else. And now he should debase himself to humble himself to humble work in God's kingdom. Admit his closest friends confronted him for being a false prophet even. We read there in uh, the end of verse 7, verse 6 and 7, verse 6, excuse me. Uh, what are those wounds? My friends wounded me. They shut me up because of my false prophecies. And I listened. And I'm no longer to speak anymore. I wish they would do that more often. We've had false teachers, bad teachers in the church. I've seen them and they run off. They're shut down. But they pop up later, a few years later, and yet another church. People don't learn the lesson. You mess up that bad, that's it. You should never be a pastor ever again, I would argue. True repentance has consequences. Accepts, excuse me, true repentance accepts the consequences of their sins. (laughs) And this highlights, I would argue, again, in that day, in this New Testament era, the importance of the average everyday layman in rejecting lies and prophecies, as uh, our deacon mentioned this morning in Sunday school class. We should be Bereans. Why aren't these people Bereans? Why do they accept just anybody talking from the pulpit? This, is, this tells you exactly what he says is true. We are called. It didn't say only the pastors. It says any prophet, anybody who's a liar, who's speaking truth, who's causing problems in the church, I would argue, doctrinally and in practice, because the prophets did the same thing. The practice, of course, would be false worship. 
their own parents who aren't church officers to tell them, shut up. You're in danger of losing your soul. (laughs) We all have this responsibility in the New Testament era. And God uses us. In that day there shall be no, the names of the idols shall be gone and the prophets will be gone. And how shall the prophets be gone? One day they disappear? No, because the parents rise up and say, no more. The people in the church say, no more to false teaching and twisting the word of God. That's the Reformation revival we pray for in the American church, isn't it? The people would rise up as prophesied in here. And it has happened before. And I, I believe it will happen again before Christ Jesus returns. Somewhere in this world, in his churches, the people will no longer put up with the false lies and say, we want to be fed the pure word of God and have the fount of Jesus Christ cover our sins. Let us pray to that end. Our Lord and Savior, we do pray for that. We pray for reformation, not just the personal morals, but reformation to remove the idols of the land. Reformation to, Lord, cause false teachers to repent and to change God and a reformation of worship. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Hymn 219, 219.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you grace.